Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In this second letter, this personal letter to Timothy, Paul gives him four charges. We've seen that there's one in each chapter thus far. In chapter 1, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. In chapter 2, we see that the way of the Christian may involve suffering, but it certainly requires endurance. And in chapter 3, which we've been looking at, we'll look at again today, in verse number 14, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Now, one could argue, on the one hand, that this third charge is not particularly striking. It seems to be in line with guarding the faith and enduring in the faith. What is striking to me is the context. Paul begins by describing the behavior of false teachers. Giving, he gives us a list of 19 markers of their bad behavior. And then he reminds Timothy of his own behavior my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, endurance, uh, love, endurance. And then finally, my persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. As I said last week, I think we would have been happy enough if Paul had stopped after my teaching. Doctrine is what is written in the King James Version. But in fact, he does not stop there. More on this in a minute. One might wonder about the catalog of vices that Paul mentions at the beginning of the chapter. If, in fact, we could not take this same list of vices and indict the society around us. Paul is writing about the false teachers, but could we not say that this is true of our society? And I think that we could, but this is not what Paul is doing. As he told the Corinthians, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church Are you not to judge those inside? So chapter 3 begins with his judgment against these false teachers. However, as I mentioned last week, the state of any given society or culture does in fact impact the church. Paul told the Romans, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. As one paraphrase put it, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. The bad behavior and the errors that we find in any given church, in any culture or society at any time in history, doesn't come from nowhere. I know that's two negatives, but it must come from somewhere. And it comes from the surrounding culture. For example, here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the denial of the resurrection. Um, He mentions um, in verse number 18, who have wandered away from the truth, they say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. This is a Greek heresy. The Greeks in their mythology had no place for resurrection. So when the gospel comes into Greek society, many of them embrace the gospel, but they really struggle with the issue of the resurrection. You may remember when Paul was at Mars Hill or the Areopagus, that people listened to him 
But at a certain point, certain people stopped listening because, well, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. So for the Greeks, they just could not get their minds around the, the issue of the resurrection. And in Corinth, Zib is reading for us through 1 Corinthians now, the problem with their behavior is because they thought the resurrection had already taken place. They believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. They could not believe that they would be raised from the dead. So for them, that was the resurrection, capital R, resurrection. And so now they were living resurrection life, which meant that they could do anything that they wanted. All throughout the history of the church, God's people have lived in societies and cultures that were, to a certain degree, unchristian. And the pressure on the church to conform to these societies, I think, is enormous. But perhaps more than that, it isn't simply the direct challenges, these indirect things that come into the church from the surrounding society. So if, in fact, we could get on a plane and and visit churches throughout this world today, We might find errors in each one, but we would find that the errors are much more in conformity with the surrounding culture than anything else. So the materialism, for example, of the American church, I think is a reflection of American culture. You don't find this in churches that are in third world countries, for example. So, while Paul is not writing an indictment of society at large, He's writing about the false teachers. We need to understand that these false teachers got their bad behavior from the surrounding culture. This stands in stark contrast to Paul and to Timothy as he writes to him that those from whom you have learned it have their roots in Scripture. That is, what Timothy knows of truth and what Paul knows of truth has its roots not in the surrounding culture, but in fact in Scripture. If you look in chapter 3 at verses 15 through 17, how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. At this point, we need to recognize something, that we have a choice of sorts. Not really, but let's imagine that we do. Either we can view what Paul describes as impersonal, that is, truth is information, scriptures are instructions, something that is useful, Paul tells us that, or we can view the truth and scripture as personal, that which animates and gives direction. It functions like something that is, in fact, alive, because it is alive. It teaches, it rebukes, it corrects, it trains in righteousness. Living when and where we do, we are profoundly affected by our history, and particularly the Enlightenment, in which, in the Enlightenment, we begin to find this dichotomy between fact and value, that which can be asserted with certainty and that which is simply opinion that which is a value. And to most people, religion is in the value category. That it's not a fact, it's just your opinion, it's faith, hope, you know, all those religious kind of words. And so, religion is put in the value category. Well, some have tried to stand up for the truth and have said, no, 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 scripture, religion, 
The faith is, in fact, in the fact category. We are not in the value category, but in the fact category. But by doing this, they have, in a sense, reduced the truth to something that is impersonal, something that is purely informational. And I, was, I must say to such people, no, you've got it all wrong. The truth is not impersonal. It is alive and it is personal. It isn't fact versus, in fact versus value. It is something that is, in fact, alive. It is truth. It's absolutely true. But it isn't merely a fact or a collection of facts. It is something that is alive. Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. The King James has the more familiar, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The ESV has, all scripture is breathed out by God. I'd point out two things, and I mentioned this last week, and the first might seem like I'm splitting hairs. It is scripture that is inspired or God-breathed, as opposed to the writers. And so it is scripture that is God-breathed. Okay. But the second, and it's critical for this passage, remember the context is important. Let me ask you a question, and for those who were here last week, you can't answer, but for the rest of you, can you think of another place in Scripture where God breathed? Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Both humans and scripture have the breath of God. I'm convinced that this points to scripture as that which is alive. It is living. It is God-breathed. So when Paul continues and says that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, we would agree. We should agree. Yes, scripture is alive. And it functions as that which is alive. It teaches, it rebukes, it corrects, and it trains. Training, I'm sorry, teaching and rebuking point to right belief, but correcting and training in righteousness point to right behavior. But I suspect that we are much more inclined toward the right belief part of the equation than we are right behavior. In other words, we would choose creed over conduct. And in the process, or as a result, we would miss what Paul is saying in this third charge, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because we would think, oh, Paul's talking about doctrine. He's talking about scripture here. He's talking about Timothy memorizing scripture, Timothy knowing scripture. I think, in fact, he's talking about behavior. That's why I said earlier that I think we would have been happy enough if Paul had stopped after he said, you know my teaching, or my doctrine, as it is in the King James. Then the truth would be limited to information, or facts, and perhaps the interior life. But it would be invisible to those outside of us and unavailable to them because it would simply be information and it would be interiorized. I've mentioned this before, and, and I do in my lectures as well, when I teach history. What is it, what are the pressures in the modern world that have profoundly affected religion, and the church in particular? The first is secularization. 
in which it is the process through which in the modern world the central sectors of society are they've been neutralized in terms of the influences of religion so when we think of education and business things like that government we're like no religion has no part in these things these these are quite separate and so they have been secularized the second is pluralization and with modernization now we have many more choices than people had before. Um, and because we have so many choices, it has affected the way that we relate to things and to one another. But it's the third one that I'm most concerned with, and that is privatization. The process by which modern life has produced a huge gulf between the private me and the public me in people's lives. The public world is the world of big institutions. It's where you work or where you go to school, you vote, things like that, where you do your shopping. And we are participants in this big public world. As such, we are not any different than anyone else. We're consumers by definition. And if you think about it, if you work with certain companies, you wear a uniform. And so you look like everyone else to a certain degree. And so who you are, that's not, that's, you're just like everyone else. You want to be unique. And so who you are becomes something quite private, something that you do at home. It is where your uniqueness is permitted. You know, in the public sphere, you have to conform. But in the private sphere, you can do whatever it is that you want. And let's face it, this has become very attractive to the church that we can rub shoulders with people who are not like us at all. And there's, Paul would tell us there's nothing wrong with that. But our faith does not inform any of our behavior. It's simply something we do at home. So when Paul says to continue in the things that you've learned, as modern people, we immediately think, oh, this is information. This is something private. This is something I have in my head. As opposed to, how it is he is supposed to behave. What has happened in the modern world is that, in fact, our faith has become privately engaging and socially and publicly irrelevant. It's simply in our heart. I had a conversation with someone yesterday who informed me that, that his spiritual life is right with God. And he had to tell me that because there is nothing in his behavior that would seem to indicate that that's the case. And in the modern world, I think people would be fine with that. That who I am inside, that's, who, that's the real me. But the way that I'm acting, that's, that's not really me and that, that really doesn't matter. Paul wants Timothy to continue in proper conduct as well as the proper creed. In our modern world, our faith has become less real because of secularization. Our faith has simply become one choice among many. But perhaps more than anything else, it simply becomes a private matter. So that the people you work for, the people you talk to, people you engage with, they don't care where you go to church. They really don't. Just as long as it doesn't influence your behavior or what you do. Paul, in verse number 12 of chapter 3, said, 
everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We are called by Jesus to be in the world, but not of the world. In Paul's world, words, this will lead to persecution if we are in the world, but not of the world. But sometimes we find that people choose to be not of the world, but also not in the world. They isolate themselves. They withdraw from the world and therefore they are not persecuted. On the other hand, we find those who take the name of Christ who are of the world and as such they are not persecuted either because they have assimilated. Paul's words that we will suffer for the faith sound foreign to us. But we should remember the words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But let me ask you, why would anyone in this country or in the world today, for that matter, why would anyone persecute a Christian? Why would Christians be persecuted? The temptation is to say because of their beliefs. And I I must confess that there is certainly that aspect to it. Um, But wait a minute. If our beliefs are interior, if they are private, how do people even know what we believe? So persecution isn't primarily because of what we believe, but because of how we act. Because we behave or we should behave differently. We have a different moral compass which some people may take to mean that we are judgmental because we act differently than they do. And so they're like, oh, you think you're better than us. Why can't you do what we do? And you're like, no, this is what I believe to be right. It's like, well, you think you're better. You're judging us. Don't judge us for the way that we act. Christians are to be motivated primarily by love, love of God and love of one's neighbor. And how do we know this? Where do we learn this? All scripture is breathed out by God. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, that is in terms of our creed. Correcting and training in righteousness, that is in terms of our conduct. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, that is conduct. The ESV reads, by the way, for verse number 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Again, we must realize that we are affected by our history. Many people, particularly Protestants, get quite tense. They get really nervous when they hear the phrase, good works. Forgetting what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Without question, some people have taken good works the wrong way. They see it as a means to gain God's favor and even to earn salvation, which is clearly contrary to Scripture. Because in the two verses just before what I read, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Salvation from beginning to end is a gift. It comes from the grace of God. It cannot be earned. So we do not do good works in order to earn salvation. But because we have new life, 
We are to act, we are to do, we are to work in a new way. What way is that again? All scripture is breathed out by God. It is in scripture, in the living word of God, that we find how we are supposed to live. But again, we might be concerned with legalism. That this will lead to legalism. A belief that our behavior or our actions can somehow affect God's favor. That we can gain God's favor. So our fear of good works to gain salvation or good works to gain God's favor might lead us to think, well, I shouldn't do anything at all. After all, my faith is supposed to be interior. And there's the privatization again. Instead of recognizing that we are to be alive, we have been given new life, and we are to live in a particular way, and it is in Scripture that we learn what it is that God would have us to do. God has called us to live a particular way. I don't know if you remember the prayer of confession today from Ephesians chapter 4, that we are to live a life worthy of the calling. And we confess today that we do not do that. We are to live based on what scripture tells us. We are to live based on the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. I would remind you that this is a personal letter from Paul to Timothy. Timothy is a man who's called to be a leader in the church. And that's how Paul is addressing him. So we have the phrase here that the man of God in verse number 17. Um, this is a very Old Testament um, phrase. It's Old Testament language. It is used of those who are God's servants or God's agents. It's used of Moses, David, Samuel, Elijah, and Elisha. But I would remind you that, particularly in the epistles, we're only hearing one side of a conversation. Paul is speaking to Timothy. That's what we're hearing. We don't know what Timothy had to say to him before that. But based on what Paul writes, what we hear from him, we can surmise that what the false teachers have been doing is reworking the Old Testament, reworking the scriptures, and coming up with rather strange teachings. In contrast to these false teachers, we have this man, Timothy, who is the man of God. But again, I would remind you, if you look at chapter 3, and in fact, look at 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul focuses much more on their behavior than he does on their doctrine. I want to be clear that doctrine is important. It is, in fact, what I have given my life to do, and that is to teach that people will know what, in fact, is right. But living out the truth is even more important. I think perhaps, as never before, I've really been struck by how Paul focuses on the behavior. We saw it when we went through First and Second Peter, particularly Second Peter, how that Peter deals not with their theology as such, but with their behavior, because their behavior is, in fact, the result. It is the product of their, of their theology. Now we come to chapter 4. It contains some of the very last words spoken or written by Paul. It's certainly the last words that have survived He is writing or dictating within weeks, perhaps even days, of his death, his martyrdom. According to a reliable tradition, 
Paul was beheaded on the Ostian Way somewhere before 68 AD because 68 AD is when Nero died and, and Paul was put to death at the order of Caesar Nero. For more than 20 years, he had labored as an apostle, as an evangelist, as a missionary. And he writes in this chapter, verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. One writer put it this way, So these words are Paul's legacy to the church. They breathe an atmosphere of great solemnity. It is impossible to read them without being profoundly stirred. But before we come to these words in verses 7 and 8, we find Paul giving Timothy a fourth charge. It's in the first verse of chapter 4. That's where it begins. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. The language is very legal, has legal connections. And it can mean to testify under oath or to require someone, a witness, to testify under oath. We find this language in 1 Timothy as well. 1 Timothy 5.21 I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality, to do nothing out of favoritism. And in 1 Timothy 6.13, in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you. One can imagine in one's mind that Paul sees himself and Timothy in a courtroom and he is now telling Timothy, I am charging you, this is what in fact you are supposed to do. But an important question comes up particularly in chapter 4 at this beginning. The the charge given to Timothy, is it for Timothy alone or does it apply to us as well? And if you look at verse number 17 of chapter 3, one might ask the same question about that verse. This is not an unimportant question. Because if it's for Timothy alone, then why are we studying it? But if it's for everyone, then why does Paul address Timothy particularly? I want you to remember that the epistles in particular, what we've studied of them, were written to particular individuals or to particular churches. And much of what is written is within a context of the need for correction. It's a second part of a conversation. That is, there's a situation going on, and in the case of Corinth, they had actually written to Paul with their new theology, and now Paul writes back to them. We should never lose sight of that, that it is in fact a conversation of which we are not a part. Okay? Paul is writing to Timothy, no doubt Timothy has told him of the situations he has faced. There's a conversation going on. We're not part of the conversation but we are listening in on the conversation. And what Paul tells Timothy in his part of the dialogue is something from which we can learn. His first letter to Timothy was written 
not so much as a private letter, but as one which Paul assumed would be read by others. It has much to teach people, including us, about passing the faith on to the next generation. This second letter is much more personal, and yet it has much to teach us as well. And so as these two individuals are conversing, we are listening, and we are listening to what Paul is saying, and by God's grace, we can take it to heart. For example, one of the clearest statements on the nature of Scripture is that all Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God. Paul's writing that to Timothy, but I hear that and I can learn from it, and so can you. In this last chapter of 2 Timothy, we find the charge, what Paul is commissioning Timothy to do. We find the basis of the charge, that is the arguments that Paul bases his charge on. And thirdly, a personal illustration of the charge, how it is lived out in Paul's life. Today, briefly, I just want to look, beginning looking at the charge in verse number two. So verse number one, he says, I charge you. Now, verse number two, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The charge can be seen in three simple words. That is, preach the word. And Timothy knows what the word is. It is God's word, what God has spoken, what we have seen. It is the truth. It is the faith. It is sound doctrine. It is that which has been entrusted to him, which he is supposed to guard. At this point in the church, it, in fact, consists of the Old Testament scriptures. Um, The New Testament is being constructed. It is coming together. Um, And I would remind you of what Peter wrote in 2 Peter, that he says, Our brother Paul writes things that are difficult to understand, that false teachers are twisting like they do the other scriptures, which would seem to indicate that Paul's writings had, some of his writings had already taken on the authority of scripture. He is to preach the Old Testament, but also what he has heard from Paul. What does it mean to preach? Is, what is the difference between preaching and teaching? And some people would say it's the volume of one's voice. You know, preaching is louder and teaching is a little bit more subdued. To preach means literally to proclaim. It is to proclaim the truth. Timothy is to speak what God has spoken. He is not only to hear it, to believe it, to obey it, to guard it, to suffer for it, and to continue into it. He is to share it. He is to proclaim it. The word that is used is like a herald in the marketplace, that is, lifting up his voice, speaking loudly, and telling people what is the news, what is the latest news. And in the place of newspapers, you would have a herald who would proclaim the news to people. Paul says that he is to preach the word and then gives four marks, if you wish, four characteristics of what are to mark Timothy's proclamation. First of all, Timothy is to be prepared. He is to be ready. And to be honest, commentators really struggle over this first part, not, not knowing exactly what Paul has in mind. I, I think simply what Paul is saying is that the preaching must in fact have purpose. It is not to be sloppy or lackadaisical. That when Timothy preaches, he is in fact to be prepared to do so. And he is to be able to share the word of God with a purpose. 
And this should always be the case. In season or out of season. And again, what this means exactly, one does not know. But one gets a sense that, in fact, we could say always. In season out, always you are to proclaim the word of God as someone who is prepared to do so and not done in a sloppy or lackadaisical way. Secondly, this proclamation is to have a purpose. And this goes back to the idea of being prepared, preaching with a purpose. It is to correct, to rebuke, to encourage. So this suggests that there are at least three different forms of preaching, three different approaches. Uh, Intellectual, the, the moral, as well as the emotional. That not all preaching is to be exactly the same. Because sometimes the preaching has a purpose of correcting, and other times of rebuking, which is not the same as correcting, and sometimes of encouraging. The third mark, or the third characteristic of proclamation, is that there is to be great patience. It is God who saves, it is God who changes people's lives, it is God who uses the proclamation of the word to accomplish that. And Timothy, as one who preaches, needs to appreciate this. Otherwise, he might think, I preached and nothing happened. People kept on living the way that they always have. No one was converted, no one was saved, and those who are saved have not changed their behavior. There is to be great patience. And fourthly, there is to be careful instruction. Timothy is to preach or to proclaim the word with careful instruction. It has been suggested that preaching is for unbelievers and that teaching is for believers. Um, And if you go back to chapter 1, verse 11, it might, might seem to indicate that. And of the gospel, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. As a herald, he's preaching to the unbelievers, a teacher, he's teaching to the believers. Um... But I would disagree. In this final, this final charge, preaching and teaching are to go together. I was once told by a professor when I was a grad student that if I wanted to learn a subject, I should teach it. Because in order to teach, one must prepare. And in the process of preparation, one comes to learn the subject. And so... I'm very comfortable with with Paul telling Timothy, you need to preach the word and you should do so with careful instruction. You need to be prepared. You need to do your homework. If Timothy is to be a faithful preacher, he must be prepared all the time. He must understand and appreciate that not all preaching is the same. Sometimes it is intellectual. and Sometimes it is moral dealing with people's sins and other times it is emotional dealing with their sorrows Timothy must be patient and he must proclaim he must preach with careful instruction the Lord willing we will come back to this in two weeks because next Sunday Ben Ross will be speaking for us so I hope that you will keep these things in mind uh, and we'll come back to it But just in closing, I'll go back to chapter 3. And perhaps this is more for me than for you. And if so, then uh, 
bear with me. One of the things that I have found attractive about the Christian faith is that intellectually it makes sense. And I remember when the writings of a particular individual, Francis Schaeffer, came into my life, I, I devoured his writings. Because in many ways it fed that notion that the Christian faith is primarily intellectual, informational, fact the whole apologetic approach to the gospel. It was much later when I actually met Francis Schaeffer that I found that this was not the case. That while in fact the gospel makes sense, it is truth, it has an intellectual dimension to it, what Paul emphasizes over and over and over again is how it affects our living. We want to focus on I tend to want to focus on creed, on theology, on doctrine. Because I teach. And teaching usually involves information. That's not what Paul does. He focuses on the living. That because we have new life in Christ, we are to live differently than we used to. We are to love God. We are to love our neighbors ourselves. We are to look to the living word of God, that which God breathed out, that is more alive than we are, and we are alive. We are to look to it to tell us how we are to behave as the people of God. One of the things I've learned in my many years as a Christian is that there are, in fact, Christians whom I would say, without being overly judgmental, have faulty theology. And yet their behavior, their walk with the Lord is is evident that these are people who walk with God. When we get to heaven, we will not be given a theological exam to get in. We will not be questioned about our theology. If we get in, it is the grace of God. What God calls us to do is to live lives worthy of the calling we have. And here at the end of his life, as Paul is writing to, I think, his dearest disciple, someone he calls his own dear son, he writes about behavior, about his conduct. And in an age that would prefer for our religion to be private, interior, not affecting what we do, we have to resist that and say, if I am in fact a Christian and I believe what God says, then it is going to affect the way that I live. That I will have to love my enemies, as difficult as that is. That I will have to love my neighbor, which sometimes can be equally difficult. But I'm going, by God's grace, to live the truth out day by day. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have been infected, affected by the culture. Sometimes we even think that our faith is deeper, it's much more profound because it's private and interior. 
And we fear making it something that is external because that smacks of legalism. I thank you that you've allowed us to listen in on this conversation between Paul and Timothy. That your living word, your God-breathed word, speaks to us centuries later. We can see that it is not only what we believe, but how we live that is important. I thank you for the Apostle Paul, for his work, what he suffered, for his sacrifice. That all these years later, your truth has come down to us. May we not keep it in a box or in a book. May we not think of it merely as information. But may it be lived out in our lives. We, into whom you breathe the breath of life, may we take from Scripture that which is God-breathed and live lives accordingly. On this day, we thank you for your faithfulness and your generosity. I thank you for 36 years here at this church that you've given me. We are not worthy. We are recipients of your great grace. We thank you for it. And now, may your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.